to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. And I have a really interesting conversation. Of course, I think all of the conversations that we have on Pediatric Meltdown are interesting. But this one in particular speaks to an area that I think is really complicated. And that's how do we talk about weight in kids? My first episode was with my daughter and we talked about BMI. And it's a tough one because I think we're expected by the insurance companies to be documenting that. Everything we do seems to hinge on growth charts. And yet, when we have kids that are in larger bodies, you know, are they healthy? Are we worried about them? Do we know what to offer? And the answer, I think, is no, not really. So I am bringing you a guest, Dr. Joey Skelton, who's going to kind of walk us through some ways to think about weight and how we can be most helpful. Dr. Joseph, or Joey Skelton, is a professor of pediatrics and of epidemiology and prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine in North Carolina. He serves as director of Brenner Fit Families in Training, an interdisciplinary pediatric obesity treatment prevention research and educational program, and as an associate director of the program in community engagement. He is also the director of the Center for Prevention Science in Child and Family Health and serves as editor-in-chief of the journal Childhood Obesity. He received a BS degree from Furman University, an MD from the University of Tennessee Memphis College of Medicine, and a Master's of Health Sciences Research from Wake Forest University. He completed his pediatric residency, chief residency, and pediatric gastroenterology fellowship at the Medical College of Wisconsin, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. He is board certified in pediatrics and obesity medicine. His research has focused on the treatment of children with obesity. He has worked in the study of attrition from a pediatric obesity treatment and its link to family dynamics. He is funded by the NIH to develop a model of predicting dropout from pediatric weight management with a focus on family function. His clinical work involves the interdisciplinary treatment of obesity using family-centered approaches, integrating community engagement, culinary medicine, and parenting education. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Joey Skelton. Hi, Joey. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for making time for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. You're a busy man. I heard you speak at the American Academy of Pediatrics conference. You were I think one of the headliners, um, and uh, and then I bothered you at a restaurant. <laughs> you had a you had a fan moment. <laughs> <laughs> and that is uh, probably the first and last fan moment I will ever have. I think, so. yeah. yeah, no, it was just a great talk, and you know I think it was the first time that I'd heard somebody that is in the obesity prevention world also kind of give a nod to the health at every size movement, which we'll talk about. And it was, it was great. I mean, that was like, I got to get this guy. So I appreciate it. Well, I can't. And I, I'll, I just in case I forget later, you know, I'm not perfect. I've never been perfect and I never will be perfect, but some of this has been a slow evolution. It's continuing to be an evolution. And I have to heavily credit the multidisciplinary team that I work with here, the, the Brenner Fit program here at Wake Forest. And it's a team that sort of pushed me on this for a long time. You know, it's it's um, family counselors, dietitians, activity specialists, um, physical therapists, um, even our secretary. And then they're the ones oftentimes, you know, they spend a lot more time um, oftentimes with families than I do and hear different sides of it. And and I have to just credit, even though I'm still a work in progress, that so so much of it I have to credit to their influence and pushing me and and, and influencing my thinking on a lot of this, which they'll continue to influence my thinking as well as, as many other people. But I, I appreciate your kind words. Well, you know, again, it's just an, 
a nod to the fact that uh, physicians are not the pinnacle of knowledge that we benefit. My pharmacist wife would absolutely agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) We benefit from the people around us. I I think what saved my butt more than once for all the nurses when I was a resident, I was like, that was my advice to new residents was, you know, Listen to the nurses. If they're worried about something, you better be worried too. My, <laughs> so, some before I started med school, I worked um, night shifts with uh, nurses on a cardiac unit, and probably one of the more valuable experiences of my medical education. Yeah, yeah. So, well, before we get started on our topic, um, maybe you could just share with listeners a little bit about your journey into pediatrics, and particularly um, into the work that you're doing now. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm actually a pediatric gastroenterologist by training, or as I like to say, I'm a recovered pediatric gastroenterologist. I quit practicing that about uh, two to three years ago when working in obesity has always been the bulk of my work. Um, but as I started to do more research and education. Um, in this area, I, I just couldn't keep up with the GI and nutrition world anymore. But I actually had originally gone to med school to be a rural practitioner. My desire to do that, I was going to, I'm from the, the hills of East Tennessee originally, and I was on a loan repayment program actually, and was going to go back uh, to actually, one, one of the areas I could have gone back to was where Dolly Parton's from and was going to go back there to practice. And one of my big impetus in doing that was the idea of prevention. And and it's mainly because I saw both where I grew up, I saw my own family, I saw issues of heart disease and diabetes, and I had this desire of going back to serve the the places where I came from to prevent these issues. And then, um, as I think a lot of people who had a focus on prevention had sort of gone in a different direction. And you know, next thing I know, I'm doing a gastroenterology fellowship, and I'm in a physiologic genomics lab. Um, but was given the opportunity by my mentor, Colin Rudolph, to start a multidisciplinary obesity program. He was kind of an expert in multidisciplinary teams. And even though I was enjoying my lab work, I couldn't stand the idea of how, how am I doing? Are, are we doing any good in these clinics? You know, it's oftentimes we don't really know how we're doing with that. And in particular, what led to a lot of the work that I'm doing today was not only the idea of how are we doing and how could we do better, but also this idea of we weren't peering into families deep enough. You know, so much of what forms the basis of what we do in working with families who are wanting to address health habits and address weight is the family, what they call family-based. And I oftentimes, I'm very bad to go down rabbit holes. Um, I'm really horrible on trivia and, and just tends to get, you know, just go really, really deep down on some of these rabbit holes. And that's one thing I went down looking at some of the original studies that were done in the 80s and the 90s, um, looking at where did family-based obesity treatment come from. And when you look at a lot of the guidelines or now what are coming out the guidelines and things that say family-based, when I went back and looked, it was always a parent and a child participating in these studies. And a parent and a child together, they would usually be termed as a family-based program. Well, you know, just my family alone, you know, it's me, my wife and my two children. That's, you know, so me and one of my children does not represent my entire family. And if I take my son and, you know, you as a pediatrician, you know, that's what we typically see. We see diets, we see a parent and a child together because families are busy, you know, and you, you can't take both your children out of school, or if it's a two parent household, both parents can often come to the visit. You know, you, you do what you can because we're all busy and it's, those that dyad, that parent and that child together represent the family. And it really depends on what you're hearing from that family is they, they paint that picture of the entire family for you. And it really comes down to that. And it, it comes down to the, the story they give you of the family to get an idea of what's going on. And so that, that always sort of haunted me of, I don't think we're really doing family-based treatment. Um, there's so much of the family that we don't know about. And so a lot of that of wanting to dive more into the research with that is what led me to come down to Wake Forest School of Medicine here in North Carolina. And actually, I spent a whole year studying in a, with um, sort of part-time with a professor in a field I didn't know existed, human development and family studies. UNC Greensboro actually has one of the top programs in the country. And guess what? Come to find out, in pediatrics, I hate to tell you, Lee, we don't know a lot about families. You know, there's so much that we don't, we know a lot about parenting. Um, we know a lot about kids, but we don't know a lot about families. And so it really kind of led me even deeper in this idea of this family system and how complex it is. 
And I think that opens up a whole new world when it comes to addressing issues around weight and relationships. And I think we just scratch at the surface with issues um, when you talk about weight bias within families and how we talk about weight and model health behaviors and stuff like that. You, you got to dive into the, the complexities of a family and, and ask those hard questions, you know, because oftentimes, you know, I, I found this with my own parents and, I, and this idea of the family system uh, applies to adults too. You know, when my dad began having health problems and my mom would accompany my dad to the doctor and I would call my mom after and say, well, what did the doctor say? Well, did you know he's from Knoxville too? No, mom. What did he say about that? You know, well, you know, he, his sister is actually from Johnson City too, It's which is where we were from. Mom, but what did he say about dad and his medications? And so it's so much of what we get about a family comes from the people in the room and it's limited by the information that you're giving you. And so it really comes down to that old fashioned physician relationship. You got to get to know families. You got to show them that you care if you're really going to help them sort of make those changes. So, sorry, very long roundabout way to answer your question. <laughs> no, I love it. Well, it it just makes me, again, you know, the art of medicine. I mean, we are not automobiles and you just, you know, fix, a, you know, an engine part and it's all good. I mean, you know, we are complicated individuals. And when it comes to eating and our weight, I mean, it's just messy. I mean, and you know, how we look at this in the United States is very different than a part of the world where they're starving. You know, I mean, this is a, it's a a cultural thing and certainly in other countries too, but, you know, here we're obsessed with how we look and trying to accept how we look and, you know, it's just such a mess. And And when things get complex, we want to simplify well, and trying to untangle it, you know, in a 20 minute visit at the doctor's office. So, you know, it's like, where do you start? You know, we talk about obesity, weight, BMI, dieting, and, you know, they seem to be like straightforward terms like, oh, yeah, I know what that means. I know what BMI is. But, you know, they, they, there's all this emotion. It's just full of emotion. So, you know, when when the kids are coming to you and you're in a tertiary center, you know, what what's that look like, those kids that come to you? Yeah, so for me, you know, and I sort of have two sides to my practice. And one is for families that are wanting, they're they're coming to me to address weight. And then I have another clinic um, that they're coming to me typically for health problems related to weight. Um, maybe they're going to start addressing issues related to weight, or maybe it's just related to the weight problems. But, you know, one thing, you know, as we know in kids, kids are not little adults, but I think and as much as everyone says they recognize that, they understand that pediatrics is different, especially in hospital systems um, and insurers, they treat kids like little adults. And you have to realize that oftentimes for patients coming to me often, and, and sometimes that patients that they're, they really want to come see me because they want to do something about their weight. They want to prevent health problems. But oftentimes patients are sent to me. Um, you know, they're, they're told by their primary care doctor, you know, you, you, you're at risk for diabetes, you need to go see this program. And it's not that the parents sought me out or the kids sought me out to do something about it. Now, it could be maybe, again, they, they learned about this and they do want to do something about their health and their weight. But oftentimes they're sent to me and, and maybe there are other competing things in their life. And maybe this is just not a priority right now. We, we've had families come to us that are, you know, they're living in a shelter. A parent just lost their job. They just, they're about to move. And oftentimes we're like, you know, that's, there's a lot else going on. You know, the, some of the research that health economists do, it's the, what's called the scarcity research, where we can only handle so many stressful things at a time and starting to change a lot of the health habits, a lot of the health behaviors within your house going to cause some stress. And if now is not a good time, then maybe we should wait. And actually, as you and I are talking right now, I know this will air at a later date, but you know, we're getting ready to go on the holidays. No one wants to start a weight management program right now. No one wants to start new habits right now. January exactly. 1st. And that, you know, and so it's, we, and so when, one thing that we set up in our program is you could start our program when you're ready. You know, it's, it's not an emergency. You might have a lot of competing things going on, you know, make sure it's a good right time for you. So, so for some of our families that are coming to see us, there might be a lot of other stuff going on. You know, the child might be having some issues in school. You know, the number one referral that we make out of our program is not to 
a cardiologist or a nephrologist or to a pulmonologist. Number one referral that we make is actually to a counselor because it's usually us identifying issues around anxiety or depression. The number two referral that we make is a parent to a a mental health resource because parents oftentimes are struggling with some of the same issues. But as we all know, parents sacrifice. Parents are always going to be trying to help their child first. We oftentimes tell the story of why when you get on an airplane and, you know, when they go through the training about when the oxygen mask drops, you're going to put it on yourself first so so you can breathe and help your child. And so that's one of the um, ways we explain it to a parent is if if you're not doing well, you're not going to do well in parenting your child. And so, you know, families are under a lot of stress and it's, it seems to be only getting worse in time. And so we always want to make sure that it's a good time for a family to come to see us to, to be making a lot of those changes. And sort of on the other side is I see a lot of families that um, they've suddenly been presented with a possible, what I would call an adult illness, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, risk of type two diabetes, things like that, and being able to put those in context to not scare them because that's oftentimes what families are. They're scared because they're scared about these quote adult illnesses. But when people are scared, we oftentimes don't make the best decisions and we might overreact or underreact. And so oftentimes we're trying to take away some of that fear and empower them to make those changes. Although I think maybe sometimes we think as clinicians, like maybe if people are scared, they'll make those changes. Like if we just, you know, up the ante kind of, but, and I know the answer to this question, but I want to hear you talk about it a little bit is, is the, the root of the problem, the patient or parent's fault? Like if we just, (laughs) if we just focus on their bad behaviors and I'm putting that in air quotes, their, their bad behaviors that the needle, literally the needle is somehow going to shift if we can just have them realize that they're making big mistakes. I'm, I'm saying this more and more, and, and I will, this is where even as little as five years ago, but definitely 10, 15 years ago, I, I was probably as guilty as anyone is talking about the behaviors that you need to change, which what is not said, but implied when I say that is the behaviors that you did that brought you here, that that brought to the weight. And that is absolutely not true. And so 100%, without a doubt, I cannot stress this strong enough. And then I say this is the reason you are here is not anything that you as a child did wrong. And oftentimes I'm not saying this in front of the child. Um, I'm usually saying this in front of a parent, unless it's a teenager who's brought up. But the reason you're here is not something that you did wrong. The reason you're here is your body tends to put on weight. Our bodies like to prepare for famines and wars and things like that. Our bodies like to gain weight and protect the weight that we're at. Also, sometimes we do have to admit genetically, our you know our bodies um, genetically are geared to be different sizes. And so sometimes genetically, our bodies are pushing us to be maybe a little bigger than um, someone else. So there's a lot of our body that we don't have control over put in an environment that causes us to gain weight. So what has led you here is absolutely nothing that you did wrong. It has nothing to do with willpower. It has nothing to do with the fact that you like food more than anyone else or that you don't move as more as you'll move as much as anyone else. The reason you're here is the world we live in tends to um, be a place that causes us to gain weight and our bodies tend to like to gain weight. Um, And some of us, some of us do have uh, a, a little bit of a predisposition to, to gain weight a little bit faster. I come from a family that we're in bigger bodies, um, and it's a little bit easier for us to gain weight. If you if you look at our family compared to another family, you know we we just know that. And and actually, for people in bigger bodies, genetics does seem to play a little bit more of a role in that. And there's some really good genetic studies that support that. So just and, and that'll be the number one thing that we have to fight against. The number one message that we have to get out there. It's not even that obesity is a moral failing. Obesity is not a moral failing. But the reason that we have bigger bodies, the reason that we have obesity is the environment around us and either a genetic predisposition or just the fact that our bodies are kind of geared to put on weight and our bodies are geared to protect the weight that we're presently at. So you just answered the question about what else should we be factoring in? And as you're talking, I'm just hearing in my head, the clinician voices, including probably my own that are like, no, but that's wrong. It is the behaviors. It is. If they just did this differently, it would be different. And that feels like to me that 
that's a a big part of the problem is us. I just don't feel like we're always that helpful. And and it's not that we don't mean to be. I mean, Lord knows we really want to, you know, we think it's a problem to be fixed and we're, we're trying and the things that we do don't seem to work that yeah, great. And I, I just had this uh, discussion with a colleague the other day, and, and this is a major change in my thinking and a lot of our thinkings in the community. Um, I think there's a lot of other people that have had this thoughts way ahead of us, but I think in the medical community, we're sort of, we've been a little bit slower is recognizing and fully accepting of how our environment impacts our behaviors. And I think we've always sort of known that, but I don't think that we've accepted it because I think we have always accepted that we have full control of our behaviors and it's up to us to change our behaviors. Because in some senses, you know, we do have some, we do have control over our, over our behaviors. There are things that we can do differently. And there is research that has shown that, hey, we can change some of these behaviors through behavior modification programs. We have been able to change behaviors and improve our way. And that, but I think that we've extrapolated that to a hundred percent of the people out there instead of recognizing so many of those studies have been done in very narrow populations under very strict criteria where paying people to participate and they haven't been for long term. If you go back to Epstein's original studies, which looked at long term outcomes for 10 years, those were intact two parent, very well educated families and with very intensive treatment with that. And so, you know, there's a lot of people saying, you know, that we can't, we can't extrapolate that to diverse populations in the, in the present time. I think there's very, still very important things that we can learn from that. So I think it's recognizing that we can change a lot of our behaviors, but our environment has immense influence on our behaviors. And we have to understand that and that, that we, we shouldn't blame people for their present behaviors. It means we need to support them and change in what they can. And we do not need to shame them when they're on, if they're unable to change their behaviors, um, because a lot of those are not under their control. Hey, you need to eat more meals at home. Well, you know, there, there's 8 million scenarios of, you know, a big thing that we love is trying to eat family meals together because it has so many benefits just beyond eating healthy, you know, saving money, communication in the family, positive impacts on child and parent uh, relationships, child mental health. It just sort of goes on and on. However, there, there's issues of access to the food. There's issues of, you know, where do they know how to cook? Parent work schedule, child school schedule. And we have families that literally it's maybe once a week they would be able to prepare a meal and sit down together. And I don't need to make them feel guilty with the fact that they can't do it more than once a week because it would require a parent cha- parent or guardian changing their job, changing their job schedule, which they may not have any control over, learning cooking skills, possibly moving locations. I mean, it's just, it's so incredibly complex. And so, whereas it, it seems like some of these behavior changes would be achievable, oftentimes they are not due to social drivers or health that are not under the control of those individuals. Yeah. And I, I think back, I did a podcast with um, Kofi Essel mm-hmm. about a year ago on food insecurity. And I think one of the things that surprises people maybe is that, you know, a lot of children who are in larger bodies um, may meet the criteria for obesity. They have food insecurity and we're sort of in our heads going, but wait, that doesn't make sense. But you know, the food they have access to may be this very high caloric density foods, poor quality foods. And so, you know, poor kids can be heavy because they don't have, you know, access to to food, which is uh, it like, it seems like a conundrum. Like, how does that make sense? But, you know, I, it made me think about that we often aren't thinking about this in the right way. It, it's not, you know, it's sort of like we keep pounding our head against the wall, like, it's my job to tell your kid, and, and I'm using these terms not to be derogatory, but, you know, your kid is fat or too fat or too heavy. And it's my job to tell you, because if I don't tell you this, it's on me to tell you. And somehow you're not going to know otherwise. And this insurance company is driving me to do it because I got to mark down your BMI and I got to write it all over your chart and give you a diagnosis. And so it makes it really hard for us to change, I yeah, think. it's. Well, first of all, I, I'm really scared to speak now because I know Kofi and he's way smarter than me. And now that he's been on the show, now I'm scared to speak. But um, <laughs> but it, and I think when I talked to you before, you'd mentioned um, how we as pediatricians, you know, because we're, 
you, I mean, you, you don't go into pediatrics unless you just advocate for child health and you want the best for children. And we feel compelled to do everything we can. And we, we feel a compulsion to prevent, even in the face of overwhelming odds. And, and, and honestly, sometimes these are odds that it's a parent who's overwhelmed that has 8 million other stresses in their life besides this child's weight. And, um, and, and I've been guilty of it. And I, I encourage people that if, if you feel that this is not something you need to bring up with the parent right now, then don't. You, you probably should listen to your gut. If you sense that they are stressed and there's a lot of other stuff going on, this is just going to be another weight on their back. Because what I hear, and I think you're, you're about to say that I think is this whole feeling of, well, you know, they need to understand. I was witness to a, a listserv discussion the other day about how we code for this. And, you know, the discussion of do we code for, you know, severe obesity and, and, you know, we're trying to get away from things like morbid. We discovered that, you know, morbid tends to be a very offensive term. And, you know, one of the discussions was, well, they, they need to see it. They need to understand. And to me, I don't know if they intend it that way, but to me, I see that as the next step of that, the extension of that is scaring, you know, like, listen, they're not worried about it in there. I need to convince them. You know, my first publication was one of those of the parent, you know, not recognizing their child's obesity. Um, you know, there's been several publications like that and that, you know, they need to be made aware of that. And that comes from our compulsion to prevent and bring awareness to. And, and I think that deserves revisiting right now. We always have to remember BMI is a screening tool. It's a tool if it's a screening tool. So, you know, you know, someone at one BMI might have excess adiposity, someone at the exact same BMI at, at that same age might not, it might be more muscle mass and stuff like that. It's a screening tool. And it's the idea that, you know, maybe we need to look at other health complications. Maybe this child is gaining weight and something has gone on and it's, is to bring up a conversation. I've known people whose child who was very healthy, they had wonderful health habits and the child's weight started going up and it was brought up to the parents and that led the parents to begin restricting, limiting portion sizes, making comments. And it was done from a place of love. And it was done because the pediatrician was telling them, you need to encourage more fruits and vegetables. You need to limit portion sizes, not give seconds on high calorie foods, which led to that mealtime environment for this child to be one of pressuring and restriction, which then led to more weight gain, obsession with food, more conflict over food, which led to more weight gain and so on and so forth. And it, 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 it was painful because the child had very good health habits. The parents had very good health habits, very active, cooked meals at home. Very, I mean, just everything that you would want to see with that. But the child was having some, some weight gain. And it was because the screening tool, instead of diving in a little bit deeper of what are the health habits going on in the home, it instead was used to diagnose. And then uh, even though I, it's probably inaccurate to say a treatment was prescribed, but I think you could say then, you know, recommendations were made when that child already had very good health habits and was, again, a very athletic child. And probably just had increased muscle mass um, and, and didn't have a very good outcome from that. And again, that, that's an N of one, um, but I think it's where we need to be careful. Right. But I bet you that there are listeners out there like me. I'm listening and shaking my head like, yeah, I know these. I know these cases. I know those kids that I, and I mean, I, too, have said yeah. those things in being incredibly well-meaning, of course. And we would never want to do things to hurt kids. But, you know, we're right. following, you know, the guidelines of experts and think we're doing the right things. And, and, and then there's demands I mentioned, you know, payer demands that are like, you must document BMI. So, and then I think that there's the other piece that is yes, but there is real disease and there is real disease associated with higher body weights, like hypertension, uh, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And you've mentioned those. So what's the tightrope? I mean, how do we, how do we bridge that? Because on the one hand, we don't want to do harm by blaming and shaming and not really offering great, you know, there's not that mm -hmm. many great alternatives, really. Or do we, you know, have these bad health outcomes, these these disease outcomes happen because we didn't do something? I mean, so what's the what's the magic 
yeah, walk well, on if, the tightrope there. I'm sure you have the answer, right? <laughs> if I knew the magic, I wouldn't be doing it on a free podcast. I'd, I'd, I'd write my book and would go on Oprah and would make a lot of money. But I love um, that. I'd be a co-author. Yeah, exactly. You got it recorded, trademark it immediately on our, our book of pediatric meltdown. But um, well, I mean, a lot of a, a lot of the literature we already know is you you keep the focus on on the health. We know that when you have the focus on the health, kids respond much better to it. I I, I think there's enough in there that adults are even going. We're, we're going to respond better to um, the the focus on the health. I think continuing to bring the focus off the weight. I think in the idea of preventing eating disorders, and there's been a lot written over the past couple of years about how individuals in bigger bodies are probably at a higher risk and have a higher prevalence of eating disorders than those that are in what would quote unquote healthy bodies or normal weight bodies. And so we need to take much greater care in that. And one of the risk factors of that in kids is too much focus on weight, too much discussion about weight within the household. You keep the focus on health. You keep the discussion around health. And so I think of one of my friends that's a uh, communications professor here at Wake Forest, and he talks about public health campaigns need to be focused on issues in which there is an answer and which there is a solution. You you want to protect against car injuries, you need to wear a seatbelt. You want to protect against HIV, you practice safe sex. Think about that disastrous um, obesity campaign that was in Georgia, you know, prevent diabetes, you know, do something about weight. Well, we know long-term weight loss is extremely difficult. We know the control of that, as I talked about earlier, has to deal with genetics and physiology as well as environment. Well, we don't have much, we don't really have any control over those. So weight can be a very difficult thing to do about. So why are we doing public health campaigns around weight when there's no easy solution to it? And the solutions that we do have are very individualized. However, we can have sort of discussions around different health habits, especially things related to families, such as having a family meal, such as non-pressuring approaches to feeding, about spending time together as a family, good parenting practices, which will extend beyond issues of weight and just around overall good child development of having a firm but kind approach to parenting, structure to the household, you know, set bedtimes, eating meals together, all that, all that good pediatric stuff. Um, that we like so much, it translates over to the health habits related to, to eating, nutrition, physical activity, and things like that. Um, having having limits, having rules, um, having structure, but you know, not being overly strict um, about things. And so, I think when it comes to trying, so you know, when I I see a child that is pre diabetic, that is my focus. I don't want you to develop diabetes. Oftentimes it's going to be an adolescent, which we know adolescence is a sensitive time for developing diabetes due to issues related to puberty and growth and things like that. And so I include that in the conversation. And, and so I talk about things that we can do to prevent diabetes and it may lead to a discussion about weight, but oftentimes I keep it focused on the behaviors that are related to preventing diabetes, which oftentimes are behaviors that also um, are related to weight loss and diet. I mean, it's, it's a big, big overlap there. And so keeping the focus on weight and also keeping the focus on the person. There's there's two quotes that I think everyone in medicine loves to live by. And, and I don't think we adhere to them as closely as we think we do. And, and one of those is the, it's generally attributed to Teddy Roosevelt of the, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And we all care for our patients. As a parent, we all care for our kids, but sometimes we do things and say things that it makes them feel like we don't care for them. And when we blame and we shame or we, when we get frustrated in dealing with weight, um, it, it can make them feel that we don't care for them. And then the second one, and this kind of goes back to my long diatribe about families and getting to know families, is the Sir William Osler quote of, it's better to know what sort of patient has a disease and what disease a patient has. That we, we have to get to know our, our patients, we have to get to know our families and getting to know that. And, and I do this oftentimes as a tertiary care provider that families that have tried to change behaviors or they've struggled with issues around weight, oftentimes I'll sort of pass a message along and say, you know, here are the other issues that are going on within the household that, you know, we were lucky enough because I've got, you know, we have got social workers, I've got counselors that over time, some of these things sort of come out with that. 
And and I'm able to share that and and let them know that hey, listen, it, this is a you know it's a great family and they're trying, but here are the things that are getting away. Uh, well, and, and it's not the kids' fault in all of that. And and I, I did want to touch on because you touched on this at the national conference, and that's when my ears really perked up. Was you were talking about you know this formal I don't know whether it's a movement, but the health at every size, and I think that's what you're talking about that. You can be in a larger body and be very healthy, like the the patient that you talked about. You can be in a very thin body and not be healthy at all. So it's not necessarily just a number on the scale that determines your health. But and I think in the the health at every size or the Hayes model, they talk about sort of the pillars of health, and that if you're meeting those, maybe being in a larger body, you're okay. So can you talk just a little bit about that because I think a lot of physicians don't know about Hayes. Yeah, and there's, uh, and again, it, it's a broad field. The you know the the body positivity, size acceptance, health every size, and I I can't I can't represent them. I don't I don't belong to a lot of organizations. I can tell you I have learned an immense amount from them, and and I listen to a lot of the information because I, I and I love doing qualitative research, and I think we can learn a lot from qualitative research. But go out there and listen to some of these podcasts, read some of these stories. There's a lot of wonderful writers right now that that write a lot about this, and it will give you, it'll bring you to tears. And for someone that has provided this care for years, it has brought me to tears. Of um, I, I thought I knew what a lot of these kids have gone through, and a lot of the parents have gone through. I have no idea, and you just got to hear these stories. And a lot of what the body positivity movement and health at every size, a lot of it is what is born out of. If I had to boil it down to one thing, it's you know. Health is more than weight. And, and I think that would be one of the number one things that you would get from the movement, that, that it takes a weight-neutral approach to health. And, and I think that's when you read these stories. You know, um, Virgie Tovar is a, a podcaster and writer that just talks about, um, you know, Aubrey Gordon, um, who has written under um, the title, um, She's Right Anonymously Under Your Fat Friend. It's just their whole being whether it was interactions with their friends, with the general community, with the healthcare industry, with going to a gym, it was everyone viewed them only by their body and nothing else. And so, especially as us as healthcare providers, that's what their writings tell me is everything about their health came down to their weight and how they were seen, no matter what they were there for. And so when I get a pre- just a sort of a side note, you know, I love my, my ER colleagues. And so there's all, occasionally this interest is, hey, what can we do in the ER? And I'm always like, just whatever you do, don't say anything. You know, if, if you know. and <laughs> Wow, that's, <laughs> I, well, that's, well, that's something like, you know, your grandmother might have said, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. <laughs> Like it's not going to help, so just no, right. <laughs> no. And, and there's always, you know, there's always these moments, and you know, you remember in your training, you know, I, I've had some very nice moments when I was in my training working overnight in the ER, and you know, and they ask your opinion because maybe you develop a very quick bond, and and they were to ask something. Well, first of all, I'd say unless you have some advanced training, don't offer weight management advice ever unless you have some training in it. There's a lot of great movements right now. There's a lot of good recent publications that sort of advocate for that is really we need to get away from self-directed dieting. And the influencers are just the tip of the iceberg. Several publications lately have really kind of said that of how just 99% of what the influencers are talking about is complete bug. But, you know, aside from that, you know, that so much of people in larger bodies that their interactions with the healthcare field is all about their weight. And so what they sort of ask is, treat me for me and for my health and not about my weight. So then take what I do for a living. So what do we do with that? And and that puts me in a very tough situation because a lot of families are sent to me for care. Some of them are pursuing health improvement, weight improvement by coming to me, but some of them aren't. You know, some of them are referred to me by their doctor and they're coming to me because their doctor sent them to me. And so it's, it, it is a tough situation. Um, and so the first thing I do is tell them of sort of my opinion of weight is what I said earlier. It It's a lot of genetics. It's our body. It's our body wanting to put on weight and it's what our environment, it's our environment causing it to us. It's our environment influencing our behaviors. It might be some things even in the environment that can do a lot of this. 
And I let them know it's a safe place that, you know, there's going to be no blame and shame. I'm here to get to know you and here to help you on a sign over a scale in our office. that says, you know, the number on the scale tells your relation to gravity. It says nothing about who you are. It's still a scale. And I think a lot of uh, the people I know in the body positivity movement would would, would not be happy with that. And, and I respect that. But I think one of the first things we do, we could be big advocates to do away with the self-directed dieting, with advice not based on science. I think we can recognize that people can be in bigger bodies and can be very healthy. And that just it's someone's choice if they want to do something about their weight or not. And, and how they want to pursue health is up to them and to them alone. And that might be changing how they eat or activity. It might be in a totally other way, but we need to respect that. And it's going to be a long way to change a lot of how the world perceives that. Well, it's so interesting when you're talking about, you know, the focus on health. And honestly, I felt, I mean, I, maybe it's that uh, transference. I literally felt a relief. Like, oh, you're you're talking about something that, you know, I care about too, and I want to be healthy as an individual, as opposed to you start talking about my weight and my BMI. I just feel like a bad person. I'm just, I'm gross. I'm unattractive. I feel bad. About, I mean, those are the messages in my head. I'm not, I don't say that that's true about other folks, but those are the messages that we often are telling ourselves. And the kind of different approach, and that's a different language, it's a different scripting. And the other thing I'm wondering about is when we do have our patients come in is asking them what their concerns are, you know, because we're very busy and ready. And I'm the first one to admit I would do this too. I'm ready to tell you all the things that you need to do to be better, healthier, etc. Rather than me saying, hey, I'm glad you're here today. You know, before we get started, what are the things that are most top of mind for you? What What are the things that I can help you with the most? What would make the most sense? And if they don't bring up weight, then maybe I don't bring it up either. You know, or I, I think one of the things that's really hard is the growth chart. You know, do we show it? Do we not? I mean, I know it's just a objective tool, but man, is there a lot of feelings with that? Because within our world and culture impedes that it begins and ends with the growth chart. Yeah. Absolutely. And so much of the approach to addressing issues around weight over the past 20 years has all been about calculating and plotting the BMI. I mean, that's been, I mean, the, how many QI projects have been really focused on doing that? And And now it's time to sort of say, how much do we do that now? And, and you know, and I, I would say there might be or there could be a role for that still. For so many families, there's an inflection point where you, you start to see weight start to go. Not in all, but in some that, you know, about around age five to six or, you know, or later. This is really big in the adult weight management world of take me through your sort of weight history. And, and what we don't know is when those things start to happen, is there that opportunity? Again, it comes down to that screening. If done correctly, could it be brought up? Yeah, I kind of see weight going up. Let's kind of go through some things and maybe something's identified. You know, maybe you could find that eating out is happening more, or it could be, and this is kind of an interest in, in some of the research that we've explored a little bit is, you know, maybe dad has gone on a diet and that we know if a parent is starting to go on a restrictive diet, there's an, in, in, there's diet talk in the family and there's comments made at meals that could actually translate to very unhealthy patterns in the child and actually can cause weight gain in the child, much less risk of eating disorder. So there could be some opportunities to prevent that because we, we do have to recognize it's going to take a generation to change this environment that we live in where there's a, these accepted beauty standards and, and that people in smaller bodies are the only accepted standard of better health. You know, like you said, you'll see two kids in the same family with almost identical health habits one child's in a bigger body, one child's in a smaller body, but we view this the child in the smaller body is healthier. Um, right. Something that we see constantly, and I don't know how to pick this apart, we will see a young girl in a bigger body, and she has a picky brother who is, who is thin. And it's the weirdest dynamic of the sort of pressure on this girl who's in a bigger body to, to eat less and eat healthy, and then this picky boy who's kind of being pressured to eat and, and oftentimes given snacks and stuff like that. And this girl is seeing that very tough situation to pick apart. And it's, it's just not a good situation. So it's even to take a 10,000 foot view of that. 
I love food. Most people who work in my field, we love food. Food is not the enemy. We want, I want to heal. And that's oftentimes when you listen to people in the body positivity and in the haze movement, it's about healing that relationship with food. Food is a wonderful thing. Food is a, food is a cultural thing. These are kids. They still have to grow. That is one of the biggest things that we battle against is this idea of, well, to help these kids lose weight, they have to go on a diet. And we have to push back and say, hey, these kids still need to grow another foot. Right. They still need all the nutrients to grow, but we have to sort of thread that needle like you talked about to give them the nutrients they need to grow, but grow in a healthy way, right. which means not losing weight. Right. Well, I want to make sure, and I'll get the, the links from you. Um, I want to make sure that I include in the show notes, the links to the podcast that you've mentioned and some of these other references, because I think that would be helpful. I know that there's some guidelines about screening because pediatricians are going to want to know, but what about labs? Am I supposed to do? I mean, we're the cardiology folks are recommending that we screen all kids at nine uh, and up for cholesterol. And so that's regardless of body size, which is interesting, right? Because there are thin people that have really bad cholesterol. Right. So that, and that's, that's mainly trying to identify, I mean, some of that's trying to identify that maybe there's some dietary influences in high cholesterol, but it's also trying to identify the familial. Right. So, because then you need to start those on treatment. Right. So, I mean, case in point, you can be very thin and have this really crazy hyperlipidemias. So there's that recommendation. So when we have a child that's in a larger body, say they're 10, do we start doing glucose? Do we start doing lipids? I mean, or do we sit on it? I mean, what's your, what do you, what do you recommend? What are the recommendations going to look like? Because I know that they're out there. Well, they're about to be, we've not seen the final on that. So the expert recommendations are about to become clinical practice guidelines. And we've seen a, a, a preliminary, they should be released at probably about the time that this is being released, that they're going to be released again. From what I understand, I don't think they're going to change significantly, except I do think it will still be around. I want to say, I want to say it's going to be around age 10 that you begin considering doing some screening labs, all of it, depending on other risk factors related to family history, symptomatology and physical findings relate um, in the child, such as, you know, significant acanthosis, nigricans, strong family history, type 2 diabetes, and things like that. But those are all going to be about to be blasted out in the new year. Okay. But I don't think a lot of the lab stuff is going to be changing significantly. I, I do think, though, there is this opportunity, especially with this idea of can you address issues of weight and health? And with the spirit of Hayes or with the spirit of you know, size acceptance and things like that. Again, I I feel like I could, a lot of people would say absolutely no, um, but I think we need a big mindset shift that not doing these tests to scare families. Um, And and I think some of that has been done in the past. I think it comes from a good place. I think it comes from wanting to help. Um, But I think we have to recognize, you know, so many of these health behaviors are not, it's not a moral failure. It's not something that the people did something wrong. It's, it's the social drivers of health. It's the impacting the environment on their own behaviors, uh, on their behaviors. You know, we, you know, in the United States, we have no guidelines on, you know, we have no restrictions on, on advertising, you know, in Europe, you can't advertise in some countries to children below the age of 12, because they can't recognize the difference between education and um, advertising. So it just, there, there's so much in our environment that's going to impact our children, impact our families, and it's going to influence their behaviors, and it's going to limit the control that they have over their behaviors. I still think there's a way that we can help and support and we can educate, but we also need to understand, we need to accept, and we need to make sure our patients know that we we care for them. Well, and I think, you know, kind of in, in summary of what I hear you saying is part of it is I think we have to do a a self-examination of our own biases of what we say of the incredible impact it makes on people when we say certain things that can make a huge impact, either positive or negative, and that we have an incredible opportunity to guide kids and families if we are listening to what's important to them 
what are some of their struggles? I mean, you've talked a lot about all these other factors, you know, a homeless family. I mean, they they just want to eat when they can. They're going to eat what they can. There may be food hoarding because they don't know where the next meal's coming from. I mean, I, I do not, I cannot even begin to know what that experience is like. And, right. and I do, I love your suggestion to maybe listen to some of these stories because it's out of being in someone else's experience, listening to that, that it may be a, a shift of the heart. So I, I appreciate the work you're doing and y- your kindness is just shines through. And I'm sure that your patients and parents must be very relieved to hear the kindness that you approach this with because they may often come in feeling like that they have failed their child and that the child is somehow bad and and so nice that you would give them the gift of of kindness and compassion. And that's very what a good doctor you are. That's so nice. Well, I appreciate that. And like I said, I, I don't, I don't know that I've, I've always tried to do that. And I think, you know, I think any of it, obviously I can't speak for internists or any other doctors, but I know as pediatricians, when it comes to the kindness that we, we all are driven by that. But I, I think in this field that we do with providing obesity care and weight management. Um, I, I don't know that we always have done that. And, and I, I don't think we intended to, no, um, no. but I think we were a product of our environment of how the world saw people in larger bodies. Um, and that's why, yes, absolutely. Listen to as many of these podcasts, read these stories. Um, it will affect you way more than any of the scientific literature you read about the experiences of people in larger bodies, because it made me kind of realize that things like, I mean, and it, it made me my first inkling of this was several years ago. And again, I'm, I'm a GI doctor by training. So oftentimes it's let me feel you, you know, I need, I need to fill your belly. And I said that to a child and she, he came from his grown boy now, but um, I think he, and he winced. Um, he kind of made a face. Well, who has a belly? You know, we're, we're at Christmas time right now, belly, like a bowl full of jelly. Mm-hmm. And it kind of made me realize, cause you know, we, we don't think about that in kids. But this kid had been teased. I almost know Aww. for sure. Um, and so I, I'm careful about that. I don't I, I don't even say tummy that much. Anymore. I mean, I say your stomach now and listen to these stories. And you kind of realize, even though we don't think we are, how much have I done that before and, and recognizing? And then when you really start to internalize how little control these kids and their families have over these issues, it, it can change when you when you read these stories. And so I've not always been like that. But I think I think we could always learn a little bit more. Um, and do better. Well, yeah, you know better, you can do better, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So well, listen, in closing, I just want to ask you, um, I like to ask my physician guests, if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were a resident, what would it be? Oh, gosh, go back when I was a resident. I would say don't go into the lab <laughs> without <laughs> one, even though I met wonderful people and I had some great experiences with that. I, I think I would have um, I would have spent some more time in statistics um, just because I still will always feel like uh, I could do more. And, and, I, <laughs> and I guess to, even to this day, and I don't, I think I'll always give myself the advice is, you know, continue to say no to some of these things, um, you know, try to try to narrow your focus, try to specialize a little bit more. But um, I also think that's what's led to so many opportunities and gifts for me. I think for so many people, we, we try to be a master of too much because I think we, we tend, especially as trainees, we're we're taught to worship those people that know everything about everything. And guess what? No one knows everything about everything. Right, um, right. And, and I think being able to accept that and realize you can be a master of a few things and and, and be content with and that. that. And that that's okay. It's it's good enough, right? It's absolutely okay. It's okay to be, it's okay to be good enough. Well, listen, yeah. thank you so much. And I appreciate the work that you do out there in the world and, and making it a better place for kids. So. Well, I, I appreciate you giving my one and only fan moment of my entire <laughs> career. I really appreciate that. All right. Well, listen, take care and um, keep doing what you're doing. All right. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. I think this was a really important conversation. And as always, I have a long list of takeaways. Number one, thank you to Dr. Skelton for everything he is doing for kids. I mean, what a kind and compassionate clinician. Number two, kids with weight concerns come to obesity treatment centers either because their pediatrician sends them or because there are concerns about disease. These are not families seeking weight loss for their kids. You know, and this is different than in the adult world where adults will come to obesity treatment centers with their own desire to lose weight. So it's a little bit of a different approach when it involves kids. Number three, 
Dr. Skelton first starts with, the reason you are here is not because of something you did wrong. His goal is not to blame or shame or scare families, but instead to listen to their concerns and to work from there. Number four, for many families, weight and obesity is not a priority for them at all. They may have much bigger concerns like homelessness, food insecurity, or poverty. For them, this is not the time to try and intervene, but instead is an opportunity to support them. This is not an emergency. Number five, the number one referral Dr. Skelton makes for his patients is to counseling. The number two referral he makes is for the parents to go to counseling. Number six, the education piece is critical and we need to hear this too. So write this down. The reasons for our body weight include that our bodies like to protect our weight and that makes weight loss really hard. Genetics, I mean, some of us are just destined to be in bigger bodies and our environment shapes our shape. Social determinants of health, trauma, all the things. Number seven, and this is in caps, it is really important that we change our approach. We feel compelled to help. And this looks like I must warn my parents and kids that their weight is a big issue. If I don't, I am shirking my responsibility. They won't know if I don't say something. This is very hard for us to hear. We are ingrained with the idea that weight dictates health. Number eight, so what to do? And I love this recommendation. It actually made me kind of take pause and and feel relief. Focus on health. Focus off the weight. Number nine, the most effective public health initiatives focus on problems that have solutions. Weight loss is not an easy or great solution to bigger bodies. Health is solution-driven. Number 10, the health at every size or haze movement, body acceptance movement, ascribe to a neutral approach and that health is more than weight. Number 11, many patients come to an appointment for an illness and the primary care provider or even the emergency room doctor may feel compelled to comment on their weight. They're not there for anything to do with their weight and yet we feel like we have to say something. Sometimes just don't say anything. It may not be at all helpful. And in fact, it may be very harmful and hurtful. And we don't intend to do that. It's just not who we are, but we're doing it. So rethink this. Number 12, the message from those in larger bodies. And I put some links to podcasts and links that Dr. Skelton talked about is treat me for me and not about my weight. Number 13. Okay, what about illness and disease like type 2 diabetes? I know we all get hung up on if I don't do something about the weight, they're going to have type 2 diabetes and it was my fault that I didn't tell them. Adolescence is a time that is sensitive for the development of type 2 diabetes, but maybe the conversation can be about interventions that focus on the person, on nutrition and movement and not the scale. Number 14. Food is not the enemy. Sometimes it is about healing the relationship with food. Number 15, there will be an upcoming AAP obesity clinical practice guideline to help guide the medical aspect of illness prevention. And stay tuned. It's very comprehensive. And I think it'll give you some guidance about when to do lab work and, you know, how to monitor for some of those diseases that we are concerned about. For now, listen to real stories and experiences of individuals who live in larger bodies. It may change your heart. And number 16, thank you for listening. This is hard stuff and we want so badly to be helpful, but sometimes what we are doing not only isn't working, it may be harming. Be kind. Thank you so much for listening. I, as always, appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. Take time to be kind to yourself. Appreciate those that you love around you and be grateful for the incredible privilege we have of caring for children. I hope you'll join me next week 
please uh, sign up for my email list. I'd really like to get to know you and to hear more about episodes that you'd like to hear more about. So if you can go to www.medicalbhs.com and sign up for my email. And you can also go to Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown or at Dr. Leah Gugino on Facebook and hit me up that way. Take care and have a great rest of the day. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.